is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. Today I'll be reading The City on the Cloud by L. Taylor Hansen. In the background now, I am playing Nexa Molina by Masaki Uchida off his debut album Xenolinguistics, which was released last year on Loose Lip Records. Today, um, we will have a guest um, to talk a little bit about the science and hang out. So I'm going to introduce Skylar Casco. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. So it's really exciting. We'll have Sky today. Um, first, I just thought I would start telling you a little bit about L. Taylor Hansen who's our author for today. She was born Lucille Taylor Hansen, not to be confused with the pop musician, Taylor Hansen, uh, in 1987. She only published eight short stories. At the time, she was more well known for her scientific mysteries essay series, which she published over 50 of in the 40s. In these essays, she, discovered, she discusses race, indigenous peoples, uh, humans origin and geology with titles like how old is mankind the american dragon and tribal memories of the navajo i thought about reading one of her articles but honestly they're very politically incorrect and kind of offensive according to today's standards um so not doing that. Uh, she was also notable for being an early female writer who concealed her sex. Uh, many other female authors had pen names or wrote under their initials. Uh, but frequently the public and almost always the editor knew their gender. Uh, scholars have argued if Lucille Taylor Hansen concealed her sex for privacy or for authority. I'll let you finish up with this song and we'll be back on later with our story.
So next we'll be listening to stage four, post-awareness confusions by The Caretaker. That's what's just starting right now. Uh, the Caretaker is a long-running project by the electronic musician James Leyland Kirby. This is off the album Everywhere at the End of Time, which has been released in a set of ongoing stages starting in 2016. Highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. I will be reading The City on the Cloud by L. Taylor Hansen, which was first published in Wonder Stories, October 1930. He strolled into my office in Science Hall, University of California, one day last fall. I had just finished a particularly trying period with a freshman class in physics. I had forgotten his name. Perhaps he did not tell me. After all, it does not matter, for I do not suppose I could identify him again out of the faces that stream past on Broadway unless I peered closely and watched for a pair of washed-out blue eyes with wrinkles around their corners set in a weather-beaten little face. I was therefore not surprised when he told me that he was a man of the desert. Indeed, on closer inspection, I saw that he had an air of being ill at ease in his cheap store suit, the well-creased trousers which hinted at its newness. He took off his hat and twirled it in his fingers uneasily. Are you the professor of physics? I admitted that I was and offered him a seat which he took gingerly, sitting on the very tip of the chair as if about to take flight at the first opportunity. As diplomatically as possible, I smiled and asked what I could do for him. He licked his thin brown lips and took a long breath. Well, sir, you see, it is this way. I'm a miner. I belong to the desert. That is, I mean, that I'm a gold miner. But not all at one place, you understand. I see. You travel around on the desert, looking for gold? Yes, sir. Much relieved. That's the ID. Now I've lived on the desert for well nigh 20 years, and I've seen some queer sights in my time, I have. I don't doubt that, I nodded, for no one can imagine, until he has talked over a greasewood campfire to one of these wanderers, generally known as desert rats, what strange yarns they could tell. But Shelley knows what sights we have seen. You bet Shelley knows. Shelley? Yes, sir. She's my burrow. I first saw the name on a book that I found in a hotel room with some high sounding words in it. I took a fancy to that name. It kind of reminds me of seashells, and one likes to think of the sea when the sun's baking up the cactus and lizards hold his tail up in the air to keep it off the hot ground when he runs from one sliver of shade to another. It's funny to see a lizard do that. I nodded encouragement. Well now, as what I've come for, last week, me and Rattlesnake Ed, he got his name for being 
Champion Snake Killer. Claims he has killed 10,000 rattlers, but there's some as claims he's seen part of them coming out of empty whiskey bottles. He slapped his knee and gave a high-pitched chuckle. Well, Ed and me gets in a regular brain-twisting argument last week in front of the main store, sunshade over mirages. So the boss of the store comes out and says, as you're the only man he thinks as knows enough to settle the argument, says, as how you come through there last summer with an exhibition. Expedition, you mean? Yes, sir. So they took up a collection for me to come here and see you just to find out what causes these mirages and maybe settle that argument. I laughed. So you're after some scientific explanation which will settle an argument? I'm not saying that it will get settled altogether, but the dust may get wet down a little so we can get our directions. You understand. How it happens. Perhaps, I admitted thoughtfully, the reason for the mirage may be a little hard to understand because there are so many types and combinations of types, but I will try to make my explanations as simple as possible. Now, in the first place, you know that our atmosphere is composed of air strata. And noting his puzzled look, I added quickly, an air stratum is a layer of air. He nodded. These layers of air fold around our earth, one above the other, much like the layers of skin fold around an onion. Some are warmer than others, and mirages occur where there is an uneven heating of these atmospheric layers, or strata, as in the desert, where the sands are so hot, or over the sea. He nodded slowly. Now I suppose that you have speared fish or tried to pick something out of a stream. Yes, sir. Then you know that the object is not just where it appears to be? Yes, sir. Just exactly that. And it reminds me. Just a moment. And then you will have your explanation of mirages. The reason that the fish is not where he appears to be is simply this. That the light rays coming from the layer of water into the layers of air above are bent at an angle and do not come straight. Thus giving the fish his elusive qualities. I was beginning to fear that I'd lost him when he nodded again. And why is that? he asked. Because of density. The water has a greater density than the air. That is, it is heavier, I tried to explain. Now, because of the unequal heating, as I said, of certain regions on the surface of the earth, air strata, or sometimes air pockets, will have different densities. For example, we will take an observer on the desert and the place between him and the object to be observed, say a distant mountain, a mass of air that has greater density than that surrounding it. This mass of air then becomes your stream of water into which you are looking at an object. In other words, the light rays of the original mountain passing through the air mass of greater density are bent at an angle 
and they come to the observer, and the mountain, therefore, appears to be in the air above where it exists. That is the mirage of refraction. Re what? Refraction, because the light rays are refracted. And is there other kinds? Yes, there is the mirage of reflection, as well as infinite varieties and combinations of the two. It ain't gonna be so easy to understand after all, is it? Well, no, it isn't. However, I believe that I can explain the two main types. That is enough for your friends in the desert. You understand something of the mirage of refraction now, don't you? Yes, sir. Then you have mastered the hardest type. The mirage of reflection is much easier to understand. If you will take a large mirror and hold it up on the ceiling in some fashion, and then stand back from it and look up, you will see the object on the other side of the room. Here, on a small scale, you can see what happens in the mirage of reflection. As you look up, the objects appear to be upside down. He nodded. An alluring picture. Now, we will suppose that we have a cloud with a flat bottom in the desert. A cloud, we must remember, has a lesser density than the surrounding air. This cloud's flat bottom then acts as our mirror on a gigantic scale. In it, we will see a lake reflected upside down, which is in reality out of sight, below the curve of the horizon. But I've seen them upside down, where there ain't no clouds for mirrors. Then it was another air strata that acted as your mirror, one of lesser density, we will say. That is the one from which you were looking. I can begin to see where all them combinations come in. Yes, a particular mirage may be a complicated affair. But anyhow, the thing that you see up there is sure to be found somewhere. That per part is certain, ain't it? Yes, of course. On the other hand, you may see an object so distorted that you will not recognize the original. But a plain thing, like a bridge? In that case, I would say that the original exists at no very great distance. I thought so, that it was found to be somewhere. He grinned triumphantly. That's just what I said to Ed. For don't I know, didn't I see a great bridge in the skies at Death Valley near the Devil's Golf Course? Didn't I see it hung up there like it was spanning the tops of the funeral range? Shelley's seen it too. She looked up there and you never in your life seen such surprise in my burrow's eyes as when she turned back to me as if to say, you ain't drunk this far away from Mexico and besides, I seen it too. Yes, sir. She's a smart burrow, she is. Never says nothing, but always listens so thoughtful-like when you explain something to her that you just know she must have uncommon sense. But about the bridge, why were you so certain about seeing the original? Did you see the original of your bridge? Yes, sir. That I did. It was two years later when I had to go 
to Canada for a certain miner's map from a feller. I seen it in the, that town, Edmonton, it was. Are you certain that it was the same bridge? Yes, sir, and I seen lots of bridges too, but this here one was dissimilar. A pretty long span for a mirage, I reflected thoughtfully. But instances have been recorded of mirages of icebergs in the warm waters of the Mediterranean. That's a strange bit of hell, that valley. But you was there yourself last spring, wasn't you? Indeed, I was. And it is a week that I will never forget. The geology department of our university was at work on the fossil beds. In fact, they had just uncovered a three-toed horse. But strange to say, Old Death Valley made me wish at times that I had been an artist instead of a physicist. I will never forget those dawns of magic color when the sun appeared with an angry glow or the intolerable heat of the noon day, for it was hot even then, when the sun crept up the bowl of the sky with a withered glare and the gray of the sage grew hazy with heat while the okra and bright red of the mountains danced. Nor sometimes just before sunset when the purple of the long desert shadows would rise and quench out the flame of the mountain peaks. I will never forget how once the heat over the salt beds seemed to take on veils of color and sway when suddenly, through the weirdness of it all, as if sketched on a giant canvas, I saw a greenish glowing sunset on a vast, fantastic plain, and I knew that I had been treated to the desert's master touch of beauty, the mirage. Yes, sir, I see that and more, but I ain't got all them words to tell it with. I can only stare and wonder when it grips me here, touching his heart. I nodded understandingly. Indeed, the desert had often impressed me in much the same way. But about them mirages, couldn't there be some way with them air layers for mirrors that a picture of something could be reflected from one world to another? You mean a mirage that would be a replica of a scene on another planet? Yes, sir, just exactly. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I am Hannah Wolf. We were just listening to um, The City in the Clouds by L. Taylor Hansen. Uh, we're going to take a break from that. And you will be able to find out more later about what this miner saw in a mirage in the desert. I thought I would take a break and tell you a little bit about L. Taylor Hansen. 
Um, she was not a very prolific science fiction writer. She was notable for being one of these early sci-fi writers in the genre who concealed their sex. Um, she went under Louise instead of Lucille with her editors even, so they didn't actually even know what her name was. Her first story was credited in collaboration with L.H. Edwards, Ph.D., a fictional scientist. As asserted by Eric Leif Davids, Dave Davin, of the women in early science fiction magazines, only L. L. Taylor Hansen seemed to have concealed her sex, and she actively did it. Um, for example, in this story, the city on the cloud, there's an illustration of a young man, supposedly the author, appearing with the story. Uh, later, there's a letter from L. Taylor Hansen in response to, they kind of had these like almost message boards in the back of these magazines where people would write letters to the editor and then people could write back. So there was one that she had written back that was titled L. L. Taylor Hansen Defends Himself. So she was actively portraying that she was a man. Um, according to Forrest J. Ackerman, Hansen appeared at a meeting of the Los Angeles uh, Science Fiction Society in 1939, and he said that she had placed these stories for her brother, a world traveler, who had written them. So she was saying even even the stories that she had written, she was telling editors that they were actually her brother's stories. Uh, Davin asserts this is because she was a private person, not because she was trying to maintain credibility. Uh, another researcher, Jane Donaworth, suggests that her creation of this world-traveled male brother was a probable social crisis in that she did not want to violate the convention of a male narrator in science fiction, so her person persona allows her to protect herself from social disapproval. But there's a lot of evidence against early science fiction being a hostile environment to women. While many female authors at the time were written writing under pseudonyms, there were still writing under female pseudonyms. Sometimes even male writers would write under female pseudonyms, like uh, Judson W. Reeves, who wrote under Alondra Septama, who published short stories at the same time that Hansen was first published. So there's no real reason for her to have concealed her sex just due to sexism in science fiction. But there is the argument that she also published not only these science fiction novels, but her main form of writing were these science essays. Uh, so starting in September 1941, in Amazing, she wrote uh, Scientific Mysteries, a regular column of nonfiction articles that continued until 1948. Combined with her other nonfiction articles, she wrote nearly like over over 50 articles during this period, appearing in these uh, journal these magazines five to 12 times a year. It is argued that she may have used a pseudonym that was male to increase her legitimacy for her analysis and criticism of contemporary science theory than for her science fiction stories. 
At the time, the field of professional science is seen as predominantly male, and she was a woman and a college dropout. Her first article, God Wallanda, The Mystery Continent of the Past, published in Amazing Stories, September 1941, reviewed criticisms of the theory of continental drift and presented evidence that supports it, such as geological continuities and homologous species that appear on different continents. So she was definitely publishing about science in these magazines on top of that. Um, so next we are going to be hearing uh, Bow Noise, the band Bow Noise, or uh, the song Forest 1975, but I'll finish up with The Caretaker and put that on next and stick around for the rest of the story. Thank <laughs> you. 
is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. We're going to continue with the story, The City on the Cloud, by L. Taylor Hansen. Last, we left our narrator, a physics professor at a University of California. He was listening to a miner tell a story about seeing a very strange mirage in the desert. Couldn't there be some way with them air layers for mirrors that a picture of something could be reflected from one world to another? You mean a mirage that would be a replica of a scene on another planet? Yes, sir. Just exactly. Of course, I would not like to state as a certainty that such a thing could happen. However, I will say that an image can be projected through to tremendous distance if we have a cloud or similar phenomenon which would act as a lens just over the object and in such an exact position that two parallel beams of light carried through the intervening space would strike a similar cloud near the observer at just the exact angle to reach the eye of the man who is watching but an amazing sight. Then it is possible, though very improbable, that such a chain of circumstances so exact would ever happen. Maybe, but there's lots of worlds, and we ain't the only one with life, aren't we? Any answer that I might give to such a question must be based purely upon speculation. And what do you expect? I mean, that we do not know, although it is possible, or we might say even probable, that certain of the planets are inhabited by some type of life, yet we do not know this is to be a fact. Well, if you don't know, I'll tell you for sure. One of them is. I don't know what one, but one of them other worlds has cities. I know because I've seen it. What? Yes, sir. That's the gospel of it. And I wasn't drunk either because I was a good 200 miles from a saloon at the time. 
Even if it did happen in Mexico. I tried to control a smile that had suddenly threatened to become a grin. Here indeed was a real character. You can smile if you want to, but how do you know it couldn't happen when all you just said it might? I suppressed the smile. After all, I had not intended to ridicule the idea. Tell me about it, I urged. Well, it was summer, last summer, when I was following an old claim. I'd struck off from Chihuahua, north by west. I reckon you know what that country is, Hell's Own. And in summer, too, that ain't no exaggeration. Luck had been with me, all the water holes pretty full considering. But hot? I'd rather live in a furnace. While, one day, when the sun was creeping along, withering everything that it could burn up, I seen a cool-looking overhanging rock right in my way, inviting me to rest in the shade. Shelley looks at the rock with such longing, as if she thought we ought to take the hint. And I pronto up and agree with her by stretching out. When I laid my head back on my arms, howsomever, and looked up, I seen a queer cloud just off to the side, a little from the right, overhead. It had a funny, muddled, pinkish look. Funny looking it was. I was just sort of lazy-like, puzzling over it when the mussy look began to start clearing. And man, what I seen a taken shape up there just jerked me right up on my two feet. It was there, just as plain as can be, only upside down, as if I was in the sky and them buildings was under me. It was there, but it was no city of this world. I couldn't a seen it all, you understand, for the edges got misty-like, so there was really only about three of them buildings that was real plain. But them three was enough to turn your hair white and put the cussedest bartender in Tijuana on the water wagon, only I didn't have no whiskey. I nodded to assure him that I believed the statement. I had the smile pretty well under control by now. Strange buildings, you say? I asked by way of encouragement. Say they wasn't strange, they was damn particular. First, I pinched myself to be sure that I wasn't dreaming. Then I took a long breath and looked back. Yep, it was still there. First, I pinched myself to be sure that I wasn't dreaming. Then I took a long breath and looked back. Yep, it was still there. I wish I had all of your words to tell you how funny they was. You couldn't see down to the bottom of them canyons of streets, so you might have known that they was streets if it hadn't been for them bridges howsomever thinking it over afterwards puzzling like i come to the idea that the towers was the creepiest of all no man on this earth ever made them pinkish many-sided hundred-storied what shall i call them 
tentacles? I suggested, becoming rather interested in spite of myself. I had heard many odd tales in my 15 years of teaching experience. Most of them, it is true, in the form of excuses. But I was beginning to give this old chap the credit of having broken the record. Pinnacles, yes, sir. That's just what they was, slapping his hand on his knee gleefully. What a lot of words you know. They was pinnacles. Like the way the ones in Bryce Canyon would look to an ant. Sort of overgrown, you know. Hundreds of stories high they was, with no bottoms to the narrow streets between their sides and their slender bridges like spider strings from floor to floor over the bottomless canyons of streets. I never seen so many bridges in my life going in every direction they was. And then along the edges of each floor run what looked like wide pavements. No, sir, that their mirage was no sight from this world. It vanishes. He stopped for a moment and shook his head thoughtfully while he rolled the edge of his hat brim between his stumpy, calloused fingers. How do you know that the projections were pavements? Because I seen the traffic. The traffic? I gasped. Yes, sir. Tiny black specks was passing along them pavements and across them bridges. Of course, I couldn't tell what they looked like. I was too far away. It was as if I saw a bunch of ants walking over an anthill and tried to guess their shape from horseback. Some seemed bigger than others, as if they might be machines, maybe. I'm just saying maybe, Mr. Professor. And I'm not lying, even if you think I am. Of course, I murmured. It was a most remarkable illusion. No, sir, it was no illusion. I just got through telling you that I hadn't touched no whiskey for days. I couldn't see what kind of men they was if I'd only been closer or if only I had a glass. Say, I'd have given my last drop of water just then for a pair of field glasses, but I never carried such. I nodded encouragingly. To look at the fellow, as I said, one would never have suspected it. Then, just as I was standing there and breaking my neck of, off backward, the creepiest thing of all happened. It made me all pop eyes and goose pimples. A long, scaly green thing come from somewhere in the air and lit on the flat top of one of them pinnacles. Yes, sir. And I began straining my eyes to make certain if it was the black specks I see swarming from the shiny sides of that there train flyers. If I could only have seen how they got to the lower levels of pavements. But to be real truthful, I wouldn't bet my liver about it. For there was already beginning to get hazy. First I thought it was my eyes going bad because it was so plain a minute before, but I soon saw 
that the whole city was fading. Suddenly or slowly? Well, it was just kind of wavering, like somebody shook the picture, and then the buildings all began sort of to run together soupy-like. After that, it just faded out, even the pinkish color. I stood there watching for hours. Fact is, I pitched camp right there. I marked the spot where I stood with a circle. But sunset come on. The purple shadows drowned out the fire on the mountaintops. But the city never came back. No, sir. Never again. We sat in silence a moment. Then suddenly he jumped to his feet. But I hadn't meant to tell you this. That part wasn't in the bargain. What does it matter? I had already given you my answer about mirages, and I can assure you the story did not influence me. But you did say that the mirage is a picture of something that is really to be found, if you can find it. Yes, provided that you did not see in a distorted image whose original you would not be able to recognize. He backed towards the door awkwardly, and I rose from my chair. Thank you for telling me what you did, but I'm a seeing where our argument is sure not a going to be settled. I know how Rattlesnake Ed likes loopholes in arguments, and naturally, it's up to me to tell him all these loopholes you put in, even though you backed me up, and you know you did. Opening the door with one hand behind his back, he bowed again. I'm not holding it again, you, that you're kicking up a regular sandstorm of an argument with all the maybes you put in. But howsomever, I'm a-telling you and everybody else that the city with them there, pinnacles and bridges and train flyer, was no sight from this world and belligerently closing my office door behind him, he strolled down the hall and out of my life. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. We just heard The City on the Cloud by L. Taylor Hansen. In the background, we were listening to Forest 1975 by Bonoise, and now we are listening to Soy Même Comme la Matin by Sarah. Devashi off of Dominions. Next, we'll have our guest, Skylar Casco, discuss the physics referenced in the story and its history. Thanks, Hannah. In L. Taylor Hansen's The City on the Cloud, a gold miner describes a fantastic mirage he claims to have witnessed to a bemused physics professor. Though the professor probably doesn't believe the story, he doesn't completely rule it out either, explaining that an image 
could be projected through a tremendous distance if a cloud acted as a lens at just the right spot. Unfortunately, I am going to have to rule out that possibility. There's a theoretical limit on how finely we can resolve details when looking at an object far away. And that limit is set by something called diffraction. Diffraction is just the tendency of waves to spread out as they pass through a small opening. Imagine ocean waves passing through a gap between two rocks or between two islands and rippling outward on the other side. The same thing happens with light. When light from an object passes through a lens, as in a telescope or our eye, or in the gold miner's case, some improbably perfectly shaped cloud, it spreads out to form what's known as an airy disk with a size that depends on the size of the lens. To be able to distinguish two objects, for instance, two stars in the sky, they have to be far enough apart or our lens has to be large enough that their airy disks don't overlap. A formula for how close together two stars can be while remaining distinguishable was first developed in 1867 by the English astronomer William Dawes, who was known as the eagle-eyed Dawes for his keen observational abilities with a telescope. Simply by testing the abilities of many observers, Dawes determined that in order to distinguish two stars, they had to be about four and a half arc seconds apart, divided by the diameter of the telescope measured in inches. If you're not familiar with an arc second, imagine looking at something directly to your left and then at something directly to your right. The distance between those objects in your field of view is 180 degrees of arc. An arc minute is a 60th of a degree, and an arc second is a 60th of an arc minute, or a 3,600th of a degree. When the city on the clouds was first published in 1930, the largest telescope was the 100-inch Hooker Telescope at the Mount Wilson Observatory in L.A. County. Using Dawes' formula, we can determine its resolution to be about 0.05, or 120th, of an arc second, which is about 1 100,000th of a degree of arc. That sounds pretty impressive, and in fact, Edwin Hubble was able to make groundbreaking discoveries with Hooker's telescope. In the early 1920s, proving that there was more to the universe than the Milky Way galaxy. And in 1929, one year prior to this story's publication, making the shocking discovery that the universe is expanding. Even with the Hooker telescope, our ability to distinguish details as far away as another planet is quite limited. The planet closest to Earth is Venus, which at its nearest is 25 million miles away. At that distance, two objects that are 1 20th of an arc second apart, which remember was the Hooker telescope's maximum resolving power, would be over five miles away from each other. So, the details of the city in the gold miner's mirage, its pinnacles, bridges, and traffic, would be impossible to see since any features less than five miles apart would blur together. Even in perfect conditions and ignoring the substantial effects of the Earth's atmosphere, you would need a telescope over a thousand times larger than the Hooker telescope to be able to discern the details that the miner claims to, which in his case would mean a perfectly shaped cloud miles across. On the other hand, the professor's earlier description of the mirage of refraction is accurate. He correctly explains that air with different temperatures has different densities, 
and light passing into a medium with a different density will bend. The attempt to determine exactly how much light bends during refraction, such as when passing between water and air, has a long history dating back to Ptolemy, a Greek astronomer and mathematician living in Egypt in the mid-2nd century AD. Unfortunately, Ptolemy had a handicap. Greek science was founded on the assumption that beneath appearances there lies an utterly simple world composed of the simplest possible forms and relations. Since circles are one of the simplest shapes, this view led Ptolemy to explain the apparently complicated retrograde motion of planets by postulating uniform circular epicycles, small circles that planets follow, which, in turn, would follow a larger circular path around the Earth. This idea was wrong, as was his expectation in the case of refraction that there should be a constant ratio between the angle of incidence and the angle of refraction of light passing through a given surface. Ptolemy was able to recognize that this didn't match observations, but it wasn't until 800 years later that the Persian scientist Ibn Saul found the correct relation between the ratio of the signs of the two angles in his textbook on the burning instruments in 900, 984 AD. Unfortunately, Saul's discovery was lost and the law wasn't rediscovered for another 600 years. The Dutch astronomer Thomas Harriot had discovered the law by 1602, as is known from his correspondence with the, Germaner, the German astronomer and mathematician Johannes Kepler. But due to ill health, Harriet never published his results. The relationship is now called Snell's Law, after another Dutch astronomer, the delightfully named Willebrord Snellius, who derived the law in an unpublished manuscript in 1621. However, knowledge of the law was not widespread until René Descartes finally published a treatise in which he independently derived the result in 1637. Oddly, despite having elsewhere argued that the speed of light must be infinite, in his proof of the law, he assumed that light speeds up in more dense materials. Both assumptions are incorrect. Light, of course, travels at a finite speed, and it slows down rather than speeding up in denser media. Well, Sky, thanks for all that informative information all about the history of refraction and doing those great calculations on whether or not you actually could see another planet detail through the lens of a cloud in a mirage, which the answer was no, you can't. Well, so I think we're finishing up today on Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM. Make sure to stick around for more awesome music. And I'll see you next week. Bye.